0: And I want to read a passage that we started with last week, and I, there's a reason I'm going to go back to this as we start. But in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, before we pray, we'll, let's read this together. And uh, can I ask you just to stand as we read the word here, please? Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to explain and teach. You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Later on in this chapter, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he ends this chapter in verse 48 with this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, as we uh, look to your word, we pray that you would help me to speak the very words of God as much as any human can. God, I pray that you would do that and that you would help us, you would give us ears to hear, eyes to understand uh, the meaning of this in our heart, that applies it. Lord, only you can do this, but we know that you can and that's your desire, so we pray with confidence that you glorify yourself by furthering your kingdom through what happens here this morning. Thank you, Father. Amen. Please be seated. So after last week's sermon where I talked about Jesus fulfilling the law, uh, a woman, one of the church members, emailed me with a question, does this mean we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments? Or the old, all the Old Testament laws, can we lie or cheat or do whatever? I'm so confused. And I think that confusion is pretty normal. After all, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 613 laws of which the Old Testament, I'm, I'm sorry, of which the Ten Commandments are a summary. So, do we have to obey the Old Testament or not? After all, the, commandments, the Ten Commandments are part of that law. So do do we only have to obey some of the law and not all of it? How do we know which ones? I think a lot of Christians are confused about that. So I kind of made a decision early in the week as I began thinking through the sermon to instead of going straight on to the next part of Matthew 5 to kind of address this question. Because Jesus is going to teach the meaning of the law, but before we get there, it might be good for us, living after the, the cross of Jesus, to say, all right, does this apply to us? Do we have to do this? So, I'd like to address a question the broader question of Christ, of the Christian's relationship to the whole of the, of the Old Testament. Why don't we obey all those laws, for example? When Jesus said, you know, I'm, I've come to fulfill this and, and don't disregard the commands. Maybe we can best sum up the tension here by listing three statements about this that seem to be very much in contradiction to each other. One, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Second, Jesus came to teach the law. Third statement, Jesus came to abolish the law. Which of these statements is true? Well, all of them, at least in a sense. That's what we want to talk about. So to begin, we're going to ask this question. Why was the law given? What's the purpose of the law of the Old Testament? And we're going to look at a passage in Galatians 3 that kind of talked about this in a second. But let me just summarize what I think the New Testament teaches us about the law of the Old Testament. So there are at least, I think, four reasons. First, to show Israel how to be holy before God. So the law was given to Israel as they were about to go into the promised land. It is to be a covenant, a legal document between them and the Lord. So this was a legal document and it would be recognized in standard form in in the ancient Near East. But the laws were not just chosen at random. They showed Israel what it means to live before and with a holy God. To be holy like God, at least in the time and the place in which they lived. Perhaps this is best summed up in Leviticus. In Leviticus 19, a chapter of, of all kinds of of, of laws and, and I mean they run the whole gamut there are sexual morality laws and then there are laws about not wearing clothes made of two kinds of material together and, and yet in all this it's summed up with this phrase be holy therefore as I am holy and most scholars feel that in Matthew 5 48 when Jesus says be holy therefore as God is holy he's hearkening back and echoing this so one reason the laws were given was to be a binding legal covenant between Israel and God. Uh, second, the laws of the Old Testament existed to have a restraining influence. It kept sin from getting worse and worse so that the people could live at peace with each other and, and, and through that to find blessing. Third, the law pointed to Jesus. And now, we normally think of the prophets as pointed to Jesus through the prophecies, and they do that, but so does the law so does the the 613 commandments of the Old Testament that you're going to find in the first five books of the Bible. The law does that, especially in the areas of sacrifice and temple, uh, temple worship and the festivals. I don't have time to show all this. Some years back, some of you might remember, we did a whole sermon series on the festivals of the Old Testament. And we took one festival each week and we showed what they meant, but also how they pointed ahead towards Jesus. And you can do that with the sacrifice, and you can do that with the temple. Every element of the temple construction, every sacrifice regulation, every festival, they all point ahead to Jesus. Fourth, the law showed and continues to show our sin problem. The law shows us our sin problem because no one except Jesus could keep the law in its fullness. And this is part of the reason Jesus will then spend the rest of chapter 5 showing the true meaning of the law. It's not enough just to refrain from murder, even anger at a brother that would lead to uh, that kind of a thought of hatred. It's not enough just not to commit adultery, but even lusting after someone inside. These are violations of the law. So Jesus is showing us, that we, can, we could, like the Pharisees, try to obey the law, but in reality, none of us can get there on our own. There is one person who does, and that's Jesus. So part of the law, the reason the law is there, is also as a mirror to show us that we don't measure up, and we need the mercy of God, we need the mercy of the, and the sacrifice of the cross. So the law does at least four things. It showed Israel how to, be, to live with a holy God, in their time and place. It restrained human evil so that people could flourish. It pointed out our sin problem, and it pointed, out, it pointed us to Christ, the only one who was actually able to obey the law, He was also the fulfillment of all the symbolism of the law. So Galatians 3 sums up a lot of this. Galatians is probably the fullest explanation of the Christian's relationship to the law. So this is just a part of that. Galatians 3, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Interesting, he calls it a curse. He did this by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So he's talking about Jesus on the cross. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come, Jesus. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, there's a lot here we could talk about. But you can see that Paul understood the law had a certain effect. But when Jesus came, all the rules changed. And it's no longer a curse we've been redeemed from that we're no longer under a guardian we have received sonship now so with this background let's ask this more specific question uh, what's the purpose of the law now for a Christian is it obsolete is it binding is it something else or ask this your own question do I obey the Old Testament law when I see the, the laws the commands of the first five books of the Bible am I doing that am I supposed to be doing that well this is a question that requires a little bit of nuance. So I'm going to put it like this. First, the law for Christians has been reformulated. It's not altogether abolished, but it is entirely transformed. Remember, the law for ancient Israel was a legal agreement specifying how to live in the, in the land before God. We are not part of that legal agreement. In a sense, when we read the Old Testament law, we are reading someone else's mail. All right? So, this is an example where the Bible is written for us, but not to us. And yes, the Ten Commandments are part of that legal agreement between Israel and the Promised Land, they are the prologue and the summary of the law. We are not part of that. However, We're not off the hook here, like we can, well, it just means we can do whatever we want. As Paul says in Galatians uh, 6, the same book in chapter 6, he says, You, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Sometimes Paul describes this as the law of Christ, to love others sacrificially and unconditionally, just as Christ has loved us and gave himself for us. If we do this, if you do this, you will fulfill the law of Christ. One way to put this, I, I put it like this, is simply the rule of love. There are lots of situations that we are faced with a choice, and there's no clear direction from the Bible about how to do that. Do I go to this college or that one? Do I major in this or that? Do I choose this career? Do do I, you know, how do I vote? How do I, you know, how do I give? How do I do other things? And we're not going to find in the Bible specific guidelines on how to do most of that. What we do is this principle. What we do find is this principle, the rule of love. That is, what is, in this situation, the most loving thing I can do toward other people? That is not necessarily what they want, but what they need as eternal beings. What's their deepest need? What can I do that will affect them and help them? Love looks at their deepest need and tries to give, if possible, towards that. Now, notice here this is called the law of Christ, but it, the, the very concept of law has been transformed. In fact, to call it a law might be misleading. It's a law in the sense of being universal, like the law of gravity, but it's not a a legal code for us. What What does Paul say in Romans 12, 1? There is no condemnation, that's a legal word, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the law of Christ, the commands of the New Testament, are not a legal code for us like they were a legal code for the Old Testament. Rather, they have what I think is best described as a teaching role. They show us God's heart and mind. They show us our goal. They illustrate what it means to love God and love other people. So for Christians, we are to follow the rule of love, the teachings and examples of the gospel and the epistles. This is simply what it means to be part of of being a Christ follower, a Christian. This isn't what makes us a Christian. That's how we are to live after we become that. So let's begin wrapping this up a little bit. Where does this leave us regarding the Old Testament law? I mean, those 613 commands, uh, is the Old Testament law simply irrelevant for us now, since we have the New Testament? No, not at all. Jesus spends the rest of chapter 5 teaching the meaning of the Old Testament law. Yes, part of that is to show us that we can't keep it, but part of the reason is he also warns us against being those who discard the law and teach others to do so also. So how do we as Christians, though, who don't live in ancient Israel, how do we approach the Old Testament laws, especially after Christ? Well, I think it's helpful to think of three different kinds of Old Testament laws. Now, these are not God-given distinctions. These are just practical ones, but but I think it's helpful to us. First, there are civil and temple regulation laws. For example, the law says when you sin, in fact, it seems to me when I read it, Every time you sin, you're supposed to offer a sacrifice to God. And these are not uncostly things. These are not cheap little sacrifices. Uh, a bull, a lamb, you're supposed to go up to the temple and bring that to the priest, and he's going to offer that as a, for forgiveness for your sins. Uh, or you're supposed to go up to Jerusalem three times a year, the law says. One of those times, you're supposed to build a, a booth, a little tent like this, or shelter, and live in that for a week. Now, here's the thing. For the most part, you could not obey these laws if you wanted to. Why not? Why can't you? Well, there's no temple. There's no priest. There's no altar. You can't do these things. Uh, Those things were destroyed in 70 A.D., as Jesus predicted would happen. So there are a lot of laws in the Old Testament that we simply can't obey, even if we wanted to, because they're part of the temple worship or civil religion of Israel. Now, we find meaning in those, though, again, as I talked about, by understanding their symbolism. Those Old Testament festivals weren't random. They revealed something deep about the nature of God's redemptive plans. The, those sacrifices were not to bring a bowl anymore, but they point us to Jesus. And even so, that principle of, of coming to God with a thank offering should, should Uh, should be in our heart so that's one type of law second you have uh, the moral laws of the old testament that are repeated in the new testament out of the 10 commandments you may know how many are repeated in the new testament nine very good Uh, which one's not repeated sabbath day great Thank you, uh, Addie. Yeah, the Sabbath day regulations not repeated. All the other ones are. Do not lie, do not steal, um, do, not, uh, do not covet. So out of these, then, we, we understand these are still God's continuing guidance for us because they're repeated to us as New Testament Christians. Now, can we do all these perfectly and consistently? No, <laughs> especially when we understand how Jesus intensifies and uh, internalizes these commands, right? But that's our goal, and they remain our goal and destiny. Our failures should lead us to confession and forgiveness and seeking the Spirit's power to do better. And then thirdly, there are Old Testament laws that need to be reclothed in the garments of our culture. So these are laws that teach about God and His ways in some way and how to live in holiness and love, but they're very much oriented to the life situation of of a Jew living in, say, 1,000 or 1,200 B.C. in Israel. What we need to do is strip the cultural baggage and keep the treasure inside that. Uh, A couple examples might serve best here. So uh, one of the Old Testament laws, you'll see the reference there in your notes, says that when you build a house, you should build a parapet around the roof. How many of you, how many of us, have parapets built around our, our roof at home? How many of us have any idea what a parapet is, Right? A few. All right, it's just simply a small railing that keeps people from, from falling off an edge. Remember, in ancient Israel, they didn't have sloped roofs like this. The rain wasn't nearly a problem, and they didn't, ha- didn't have the same kind of construction. You would have a flat roof, and you'd have a house built out of, out of clay and stone, very little windows. So when you came home from work in the evening, guess where the coolest part of your, of your living situation is going to be? up on the roof. So a roof was basically serving as a living room. And this was God's way of helping them to say, be careful, there is a principle here to care for the needs and, and protect the, the weak, especially the children, the elderly, those most likely to fall off something like this. So the kernel wrapped in the husk might be something like this, the God cares for the safety of the weak and the vulnerable, and we should too not only in our buildings and land, but in other areas of our life. So we look at that command. We don't try to build a railing around our roof now. But instead we say, God, show me how I can care for the weak and vulnerable like you do. All right, another example. Don't work on the Sabbath. And this one's repeated several times in the Old Testament. Don't work on the Sabbath, which means from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Don't work, just worship and rest. And as you read the Gospels, you see this commandment was taken very seriously, and there was big arguments on how far you could walk on the Sabbath without being considered work and whatnot. Uh, there's arguments that Jesus could not heal on the Sabbath because that was a kind of work. Now, in the New Testament, though, not only is this commandment not repeated, but the New Testament Christians, even though they were all Jews at the beginning, began meaning to worship on Sunday, the first day of the week. They didn't mean on Sabbath, uh, likely because that was the day of the resurrection. So does the Sabbath command, what do we do with the Sabbath command? I mean, it was so important to God's people in the Old Testament. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. Does it simply mean nothing to us now? Or do we try to recreate the Sabbath but put it on Sunday? So we make rules that you can't work and you can't do sports. Uh, I remember some families, uh, maybe some of you grew up this way, You couldn't do anything enjoyable on Sunday, basically. You couldn't watch sports. You couldn't do any sports on Sunday. Uh, Basically, you you went to church, and you kind of read your Bible, and you spent family time, but but that was it. Everything else was off limits. Well, neither of those things. We are not to ignore the command or try to recreate it and just put it on a different day. Rather, we seek out the Sabbath principle, and we try to live that out in our life. What's the Sabbath principle? I, I think you could sum it up like this. God gave the Sabbath to remind us and teach us and live out this fact that we get the good things in life not by working harder, but because of God's gift and God's blessing. Work is good, but we can pervert that into thinking, I need to work harder when the bounty of life is a gift of God. Therefore, we should set aside a good part of our time in the week to worship God and enjoy life with God instead of striving. We should set aside a good part of our time to worship God and enjoy life with God. Now what does that look like then? Well, obviously church should be part of that. And we're commanded to do do that in the New Testament. Don't give up meeting together. But do this more and more. Meet together more and more as you see the, the day of the Lord approaching in Hebrews. But probably on a daily level too. It means maybe I don't need to rush into work before I Or school before I spend some time with God maybe I need to set aside some sacred time during each day to recognize that more important than what I do is what God has done for me and who I am because of that that's recognizing the Sabbath principle and putting it into our own lives now let me begin to sum this up then we started this sermon with three statements Jesus came to fulfill the law, Jesus came to teach the law, and Jesus came to abolish the law. Do we see how, in a sense, all these statements are true? Jesus came to fulfill the law by abolishing the written legal code of law so that the true holiness of the law could grow through the Spirit in the heart of his followers. Let me say that again because it kind of sums up everything here. Jesus came to fulfill the law by abolishing the written legal code of law so that the true holiness of the law could grow through the Spirit in the heart of his followers. I'm going to conclude with this story that I heard that kind of illustrates this. A woman found herself in a marriage that had turned sour. Her husband, she found out, was a very exacting marriage. And demanding man so much so that uh, every morning before he left for work he would make a list a written list of all the things he would want her to do for him and around the house uh, and the family each morning and then each evening when he came home from work he would sit down and go over the list bullet point by bullet point and there would be hell to pay if she did not do those things and do them what the way he wanted them to do. Now, in the course of time, the man died. The woman hated to admit it, but she was actually relieved. And sometime later, she married a man who was almost the exact opposite of her first husband. He was patient. He was kind. He loved her more than he loved himself, and he gave himself fully to meet her needs. And her heart began to blossom again. One day, several years after her marriage She was going through some old clothes that she was about to give away, and she found in one of the pockets a folded piece of paper, and she began to unfold it with a tremble because she she realized it was one of those lists that her first husband had made for her, one of those lists that would hover, hover over her like a vulture each day. As she read the list, a startling and wondrous revelation came over her, she realized that she was now doing much of those same things and even more for her new husband and and even more than the list. But she was doing these things as a freely chosen act of love for someone who had done so much for her. She was doing them not out of fear, but out of love and gratitude. What used to be a law list hanging over her head was now a love list in her heart. That's something like the Christian's relationship to the law and to the commands of God. Not a law hanging over us. There is no condemnation. But a way to love the one who has loved us far more than we could ever deserve or ever repay. This is a righteousness that goes far beyond the rule-keeping of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is what prepares us for heaven. Father, as we come and sing this last song, King of Kings, retelling the whole plan of the redemptive story, would you help us to see our place in that? That we are now those who, because of the cross, are sons and daughters of you. We are not slaves to the law. We are not slaves to fear. We are those who seek to please our Father because of all that you have done for us. So would you help us, even as we rehearse all that you have done, inflame our hearts again to desire to serve you more, and then show us what that looks like and what it means, please. Thank you, Father.